Well, turn with me to Genesis 37. Genesis 37. Today we are still called by Jesus Christ to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And from the beginning, uh, as we've been walking through this, Genesis has been focused on the coming kingdom of God. That has always been the theme. And so far we have examined the original kingdom, the failed kingdom, a cleansed kingdom, the kingdom expansion, the setting for the kingdom, the birth of the kingdom, the population of the kingdom, the father of the kingdom, the challenge to the kingdom. And now we kind of see a lot of these pieces coming together. And tonight we're going to look at the formation of the kingdom. The formation of the kingdom. Israel has been formed and selected, or is being formed rather, and selected by God to be the vehicle through which salvation will be brought to the world. Salvation being offered, now it's actually being set up. Now we're seeing this nation actually start to come together. We've seen the hints of it. We've seen the promises of it to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. But now it's actually happening. And now we come to the final Toledoth. These are the generations of in Genesis. And it gets us from anticipation to consummation now. Because almost immediately when we get to Exodus, we'll see in Exodus 1 verse 7 But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And now you can hear the overtones and the nuances going all the way back to Genesis 128. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We said that that's the core of what we've called the central directive all the way back in Genesis 1. And now you get to Exodus 1 and we see that it's happening that the kingdom is now beginning its progress forward in in a more tangible way. And so tonight, we finish looking at the introductory book of our Bible, a book focused on the kingdom of God. And in looking at the formation of the kingdom, Genesis began with a world focus, but now it's exclusively narrowed down on the formation of the nation of Israel. Israel will become God's sample kingdom on earth and she'll become God's means to expand the kingdom to all the nations through the Abrahamic covenant, specifically through the seed of Messiah. And so we could identify cornerstones of the formation of the kingdom, four cornerstones that really will set up Israel for what the theme is uh, really the rest of the Old Testament. And so let's begin looking at these cornerstones together. The first cornerstone we'll call a pivotal character. A pivotal character. This is the catalyst to taking the little family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from a a small inconsequential clan to now a massive nation. The story begins with the final Toledot of Genesis. Genesis 37 verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. But very quickly, the story moves to the 11th son of Jacob, who becomes the pivotal character. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father, typical little brother. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him 
and could not speak peacefully to him. So Joseph receives this robe of many colors. It could very likely be translated a robe of long sleeves, and it seems to indicate authority. Uh, If you have colored the robe of many colors in Sunday school as a child, I hate to tell you, but this probably means a robe with long sleeves. So uh, we'll, we'll see when we get to heaven. But the main thing is that it was a robe of authority. Joseph brought a bad report of his brothers. This wasn't him just being a, a rotten little brother. This means that he had some authority over, over them. Now, all of his brothers are older than him, except for Benjamin. Some of the brothers are middle-aged men by now. And later on in the chapter, Jacob is going to send Joseph to check on his brothers. So there is some authority vested in Joseph over even the older brothers. And then God will give Joseph two dreams. In the first dream, the, the sheaves, the, the harvest of his brothers, bow down to the sheaves to the harvest of Joseph. And in the second dream, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars, Joseph's family, are bowing down to him. Now, this is all well and good. These dreams are from God. They indicate that God has some sort of plan for him that includes leadership, that includes uh, some sort of uh, leading of the family. But Joseph thought it would be a great idea to tell his brothers all about this. And I I can't imagine what this scene would be like to walk up and say, hey, I had this dream where you all bowed down to me. I don't know how he thought that was going to go well when he did that. But his brothers are angry. They're jealous. And at some point to simply ignore Joseph was no longer enough for them. Now they've developed a lengthy bitterness, which we know grows into a murderous heart. We know that some of them are certainly capable of murder. Simeon and Levi have already committed mass murder in an entire town in chapter 34. And so they conspire to kill Joseph, and this is no idle threat. They've done it before. But Reuben, the eldest, talks them out of it, and he told them instead to throw Joseph into a cistern, into a pit in the wilderness. Reuben intended to come back and get Joseph. So they took Joseph's robe from him. They threw him in the pit, and Judah had an idea. Let's sell Joseph to slave traders and make some money. So they sold Joseph for the price of a slave to Ishmaelites passing on their way to to Egypt. They were Ishmaelites in that that's a generic name for nomads, but they were Midianites by ethnicity. Reuben came back. He thought he would rescue Joseph, but he was gone. Reuben tore his clothes, he returned to his brothers, and in a cruel hoax that is completely loveless and completely not thinking of their father at all, they took Joseph's coat, they dipped it in goat blood to convince Jacob, their father, that Joseph had been torn to pieces by a wild animal. Jacob was crushed, of course, and, and mourned for days and days. And you have to understand that by now, the love of Jacob's life, Rachel, she is dead. She died in childbirth with with the second son that they had together, Benjamin. And so the only connection that Jacob has with his beloved, who is now gone, is Joseph and Benjamin. And now Joseph, in his mind, is dead. The very end of chapter 37, chapter 37, verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. 
And now began for Joseph three separate episodes in God's sovereign plan, in his working in using Joseph as the pivotal character. We have Joseph and Potiphar. We'll see Joseph in prison and then Joseph in the palace. First, we see Joseph and Potiphar. And we skip ahead to chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So already Joseph is being blessed by the Lord. He has a position, he has security, he has a good employer. But Potiphar's wife proved to be difficult, as you know. She finally successfully falsely accused Joseph of seducing her. He, she tempted him, he resisted the temptation. And so in her anger, she had Joseph sent to prison for this vicious lie. By the way, generally in Egypt, the penalty for adultery or messing with a man's marriage in any way was instant death. And so the fact that Joseph was sent to prison instead of being executed likely means that Potiphar didn't believe his wife, that he believed that uh, she may be up to something. But this was the sovereign means by which Joseph was, was being used by God. In the sovereign providence of God, Joseph uh, obviously couldn't grasp yet his imprisonment would be the means by which he would come to Pharaoh's attention and eventually come out as the savior of Egypt and the savior of his own family. And Joseph didn't know this when he went to prison. He, he didn't say, oh, good. Well, obviously what's going to happen is that I'm going to become the second most powerful man in the world soon, and then I'll save my family. He, he didn't know that. All he could do was to be faithful where he was. We get a hint, though, in chapter 39 that even though things are going badly for Joseph, there's a, a greater power at work behind the scenes, that, that mysterious sovereignty of God, that mysterious providence of God. Four times in chapter 39, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. Now, from looking at his situation on the surface, you wouldn't see that. But the text affirms God's presence. The second episode in God's sovereign plan, Joseph in prison, like in Potiphar's house, Joseph was faithful and he was helpful in prison. You may recall I preached an entire message in our Strength in the Desert series on how Joseph made the use of that time and, and made himself useful in the midst of suffering. And again, Joseph rose to leadership. Chapter 39, verse 21 but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And now we come to the famous episode of Pharaoh's cupbearer, that's his chief butler, essentially, and his chief baker. Both are in prison for some offense. Most likely, uh, there was a plot against Pharaoh's life, and it's being investigated. Both have dreams, and by God's power, Joseph interprets both the dreams, and the interpretations come true for both. The cupbearer will be restored, and the baker will be executed. And that's exactly what happened. When the cupbearer was released, Joseph had asked him to remember him to Pharaoh, but of course, he forgot for two more years. Then we get to the third episode in God's sovereign plan, Joseph in the palace, chapter 41. 
Two years after the cupbearer was released, Pharaoh had a birthday. And he had two dreams uh, that were, Pharaoh had a birthday rather on the day that uh, the cupbearer was released. And two years later, Pharaoh has two dreams given to him by God. Both dreams are disturbing to Pharaoh and he wanted them interpreted, but no one could. The cupbearer came to his senses and said, I remember now there's this guy named Joseph who interpreted my dream two years earlier. Chapter 41, verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh describes the two dreams. They both refer to the same event. Seven years of of great harvest, great plenty, followed by seven years of great famine, of great hardship. And so Joseph had a suggestion then. Chapter 41, verse 33. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of those, these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Pharaoh apparently was a man of action, said, good idea, you're it. And I I can't imagine how shocked Joseph must have been at that moment to go from the lowest of the low to the highest of the high. He literally became the second most powerful man in the world while still in, in prison garb, essentially. Pharaoh gave Joseph an Egyptian name, verse 45, and an Egyptian wife. Verse 46 tells us that Joseph was 30 years old when this happened. He has now endured 13 years of separation from his family, 13 years of his beloved father thinking that he's dead, and here he is, the most powerful, second most powerful man in the world. Joseph did his job extremely well. He gathered mass quantities of food for the next seven years. During this time, his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, were born. The end of chapter 41, look with me at verse 53, rather. Verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end. And the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Oh, all the earth coming to Egypt. God's kingdom plan is going worldwide now. Now we're seeing an influence over the whole world. The stage of redemptive history is getting bigger. Now we should note that while Joseph is the human pivotal figure in this story, he really is just the instrument of God's providence to continue the kingdom plan moving forward. And we'll see that more as we get closer to the end of of Genesis but in these previous chapters, there were three sets of double dreams. 
Joseph had two dreams. The butler and the baker had two dreams between the two of them. And then Pharaoh had two dreams. Why is that important? Well, we actually get a commentary about this. This is significant because the double dream sequence is God's way of saying, I'm behind all this. I'm making this happen, and my plan will definitely come to pass. Look back with me at chapter 41, verse 32. Chapter 41, verse 32, Joseph told Pharaoh, And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. God is not juggling circumstances to try to recover from a really bad near loss. This has been God's plan all along. So the first cornerstone of the formation of the kingdom, that that first pivotal thing that we're looking at is a pivotal character. But now we have a small problem that we have to deal with. The men through whom God is supposedly going to raise up his chosen nation are for the most part all scoundrels. They have the hearts of murderers, they're cruel to their father, they're deceptive, and they're wicked. And that's not the type of people that God tends to start entire kingdoms with. This is a bunch of guys, a bunch of men who are just really sinful, selfish, and not the type of men we would even want to associate with. These fathers of the nation, this patriarchy, they cannot be God's representatives on earth as unsaved false faith pretenders who have no fear of God, who have no sorrow of their own personal sin, who have no sense of remorse over their sinfulness compared to God's holiness. And so they have to be redeemed. And the second cornerstone in this formation of the kingdom then is a redeemed patriarchy. A redeemed patriarchy. The famine is bad and now even those living far away must come to Egypt for food. And so Joseph had three recorded episodes. Now Joseph's family is going to make three trips to Egypt with some very unusual things happening to them. The first trip we see recorded in chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Very typical father statement, I think. And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. And now the drama begins, and never in a million years would Joseph's brothers imagine what's about to happen. Verse 6, Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said, they said from the land of Canaan to buy food. And the text then records that the memories of his dreams now 20 years ago came back to Joseph as his brothers bowed down to him, just as God showed him in a dream. But they didn't recognize Joseph yet. And so Joseph began a series of events that really at first seem harsh, seem even vindictive, but they will have a purpose. The first thing he did was he accused his brothers of being spies. He says, tell me your story. And so in order to defend themselves, they they tell their whole story. And this, of course, confirms exactly who they are. And then he imprisons them on the condition that one of them return home and bring Benjamin to verify the story. 
Remember, Benjamin is Joseph's youngest brother and the only brother he had by his mother, Rachel. So he lets them stew on this for three days in prison. The text doesn't tell us, but how much do you want to bet that Joseph had been thrown in a pit for three days as well? Then maybe there's a little bit of let's see how you like it here. And after now having placed great fear in them, he shows mercy, and yet he's controlling the whole situation. On the third day, he tells them, I fear God just like you do. He's telling them, I believe in the same God of your father. And he says that if they have leave just one of them behind and bring Benjamin, then they will not die. And so he places them in a position for the second time in their family history to leave a brother behind. And look what happens to their hearts. Look what begins to happen. Chapter 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, and remember, they're still standing in front of Joseph and they're speaking Hebrew. They don't think he can understand. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy, but you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. By the way, did you notice a detail of Joseph's betrayal that wasn't in chapter 37? We saw the distress of his soul and he begged us. They remember that. That's 20 years ago. So their guilt and their conviction is growing. It's been in their heart ever since. And then just to continue to put them in a terrible and vulnerable position, Joseph gave these orders to fill their bags with grain and to put all the money they would paid for the grain back into their bags. God is going to providentially use Joseph to break these men. Chapter 42, verse 26. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey father at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of a sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. When they were angry and murderous and furious and jealous in their heart, where are their hearts now? The end of verse 28, at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? This is a death sentence. This is the end of them. They returned home. They told Jacob the whole story. Jacob refused to send Benjamin. He said, no, you're not going to take him. Benjamin is Jacob's last connection on this earth to his beloved Rachel, who has been long dead in childbirth. But ultimately, they run out of food. And so they have to take now a second trip. Chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Earlier, Reuben had pledged the life of his two sons if they didn't bring Benjamin back alive. 
And now Judah will make a pledge. Verse 8 of chapter 43, And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. And in an act of contrition directed by their father Jacob, by the way, they're listening to their father now. They brought many gifts and they brought double the money. But how would they handle this second meeting? Well, when Joseph learned that his little brother Benjamin, whom he hadn't seen since Benjamin was a little boy, this is two decades now, when he learned that Benjamin was with them, he instructed his butler to have the men go to his home to dine with him. Now, they didn't know that's why. There would be a different reason in their minds. When they found out that they were going to his house, they were terrified. They figured it was because of the money that was found in their grain sacks and at his personal home, Joseph could more quietly capture them and enslave them and take everything they owned for himself. And so when they arrived at the house, the men wasted no time. They, they spilled their guts immediately. Chapter 43, verse 19. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of a sack, our mouth and our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. And this is this is the moment that they may die. Well, how would they be treated? Verse 23, this is the steward. He replied, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Oh, what a relief. Did you notice to whom they're being pointed? The God of your father provided for you. They're being pointed by an Egyptian back to their God. Simeon, who had been left in prison, was brought out. They were all cleaned up for lunch. And once again, Joseph's prophetic dreams are fulfilled. Verse 26 of chapter 43. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. This was the first time in 20 years he'd seen his little brother. And Joseph ran out weeping, ran out to cry. Now, when he returned, lunch is served. Egyptians can't stand shepherds and they can't stand the Semite peoples. So they dined alone. The brothers were served at a separate table. And we see clearly Joseph's intention now to try to create the right opportunity for a reunion. And so he does something interesting that may later prove his identity to them, but at some level probably just messes with them a little bit. Chapter 43, verse 33. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. 
Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. The Hebrew word for merry means that they got a little bit tipsy, that they, they had a good time together. They enjoyed being together. But Joseph wasn't done. In wisdom given by the Lord alone, he would continue to test them and to break their hearts. Joseph repeated his earlier ploy of putting all their money back in their sacks, but this time he included a death sentence. He put his personal silver cup in Benjamin's grain sack. After the men had left the city, Joseph's servant followed ostensibly with a guard unit, and they accused the men of theft, and when the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, they tore their clothes in grief, and they all returned to the city. Where are their hearts now in regard to a son of Rachel? Where are their hearts now in regard to a younger brother? And now for the first time, Judah, who is the fourth son of Jacob, whom we've said in previous messages, he would have to now assume the mantle of the firstborn because of the sins of Reuben, Simeon, and Levi in other contexts. He steps up and he represents his brothers as the eldest. Judah is the one who said in chapter 37, come, let us sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And now all their problems can be solved if he would just do the same thing to Benjamin. If he would just say, sorry, Benjamin, you're out on this one. But Judah gives what one Old Testament scholar calls, quote, the finest speech in the entire Old Testament. Chapter 44, verse 18, and it's worth our while to read the entire speech. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your your servant, my father, And the boy is not with us. Then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. And here it is. Now, therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord 
and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Before, Judah wanted to get rid of his brother. Now, he wants to save his brother. Before, the brothers didn't care what their brother's loss would do to their father. And now, they'll do anything to keep their father from more pain. Before, Judah and his brothers thought only of themselves. And now, Judah offers himself as a sacrifice for Benjamin. Mission accomplished. The sons have now changed heart. And in one of the most emotional scenes, I think, in the entire Bible, chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me, meaning all the Egyptians. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. I imagine their jaws going up and down. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. In other words, look carefully at me. And they came near and he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. You notice the kingdom plan of God? Verse 7, to keep you alive for many survivors. This is one of the happiest endings in all the Bible. And so Joseph tells his brothers to go home and bring all their family, bring all their flocks, bring everything. That he'll give them the entire land of Goshen, one of the finest pieces of land in all of Egypt. And he'll provide for all of them for the remaining years of the famine. And how touching to see in chapter 45, verse 14 Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And, they, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. Yeah, they had 20 years to catch up on. What have you been doing, brothers? Well, we've been keeping sheep. What have you been doing? Well, I've been the most powerful man on earth except for one. How's your life going? So they're catching up on all these things. And now you have a third trip to Egypt. It's a happy trip. Pharaoh himself provides wagons and provisions for the trip home and, and back to Egypt. Joseph gave each of his brothers new clothes, but to Benjamin he gave a fortune in silver and five sets of clothes. Chapter 45, verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is the ruler. He is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb. I love that. For he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Chapters 46 and 47 are some of the happiest moments in all of the Bible. God affirms his kingdom plan, and he affirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob Chapter 46, verse 1, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. 
And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Several key things here. I will make you a great nation. The kingdom plan is still coming. God promises to be with Jacob in Egypt. And interestingly, he promises to bring him up again, bring him out again, meaning that someday Jacob is going back home. Someday Jacob's going to the promised land, to the land that's promised to him. And God says that his last sight on this earth will be the face of Rachel's boy, the face of Joseph. And now Jacob's clan makes the journey to Egypt, 70 family members and all. Jacob and Joseph are reunited in another tearful meeting. Chapter 46, verse 29. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. I would imagine Joseph's brothers and his father are brought in to meet Pharaoh. Joseph's power in Egypt now is only increasing as the famine gets worse, as recorded in, in chapter 47. And now chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. There's the kingdom plan. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. Jacob enjoyed Joseph for the first 17 years of Joseph's life, and now Jacob would enjoy Joseph for the last 17 years of his own life. And although the text continues to refer to Jacob by his given name, Jacob, now something bigger and beyond just Jacob is happening. Chapter 47, verse 29 And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Why is this significant? When Israel, the man, is resurrected someday, he wants to be in Israel, the nation, when he comes to life once again. The sovereign will, the providence of God, is is all over this story, but this is the story that was already written by God. Hundreds of years earlier, Genesis 15 records, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And that's the story of Exodus that we come to next. And God accomplished all of this through the pivotal character of Joseph and through the redemption of Joseph's brothers. How do we know that they were spiritually redeemed? In Revelation 21, in John's inspired description of a future new Jerusalem, we learn It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. God doesn't put monuments to unredeemed people in his capital city. So God redeemed them. There's the pivotal character 
There's a redeemed patriarchy. There's a third cornerstone we'll call a pure heritage. A pure heritage. Turn back to chapter 38. We have to go back in time to chapter 38 to pick up an, an extremely interesting and vital cornerstone to the formation of the kingdom. The story of Joseph has just this weird, odd interruption all the way back in Canaan regarding his older brother, Judah. Now, the, the most logical reason that this story is placed after the selling of Joseph is simply that that's when it happened. After Joseph was sold and before the family was restored. So there's not really a good place to put this, but it's important to the whole of the kingdom plan. And so the Holy Spirit inserts this story in here. This is a story about Judah, and it's definitely not his finest hour. Judah in heaven, I bet if he had the choice, would take Genesis 38 out of the Bible. It reveals how uninvested in God's kingdom Judah was, how selfish he continued to be after having sold his own younger brother into slavery. He left the family for a time. Verse 1, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. This is a, this is a man that he, he kind of partnered with. He's just leaving the family altogether. He married a Canaanite woman. They had three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. When Ur was of marriageable age, he took a wife for him, Tamar. Ur did not please the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Now, according to the ancient Near East custom, which would eventually make its way into the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 25, the next brother was to go to his dead brother's wife and preserve his line by producing a child on behalf of his dead brother. Second brother, Onan, was unfaithful in this, which was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he's put to death. So, so far, Judah's sons are 0 for 2, and he's got one left. The third son, Shelah, is still a boy. And so Judah tells Tamar, let's wait around for a while. Let's wait until Shelah grows up. But the story reveals later that he had no intention of ever giving the boy to her as a husband, which means he has essentially condemned her to a life of poverty and widowhood. The other two had died, and he wasn't going to risk his last son. Meanwhile... Judah's Canaanite wife died, and apparently Tamar was tired of waiting. So she dressed up like a prostitute. She veiled herself. She was unrecognizable. She seduced Judah. She took some of his identifiable possessions as a pledge of future payment. Tamar conceived and was pregnant, and when Judah found out she was pregnant, not knowing that he had caused this, he condemned her to be burned to death. Tamar produced his property. I imagine that was a tense moment. He left that property with who he thought was a prostitute, and he was, of course, forced to release her. Tamar, as it turns out, was pregnant with twins. And it was an interesting birth. The first twin stuck his hand out. The midwife tied a scarlet thread around his hand to say, he's the firstborn, but firstborn said, too cold out here, and went back in. Then his younger brother, technically the youngest now, was born, followed by the firstborn. Zira was the firstborn with the thread, and Perez was the younger. Now, we could moralize this story all day long to talk about the sexual promiscuity of Judah and Tamar. We could talk about families not sticking together. That's not the point of the story. The overarching story of God bringing about a, a kingdom is what we're talking about here. And in that kingdom, what's the major linchpin of God's kingdom plan? What's the, what's the, the crux of the whole thing? 
Genesis 3.15, a Savior will come to save mankind from their sin. And specifically, according to the Abrahamic covenant, this Savior would come from the descend, be the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Judah's older three brothers, Reuben, Simeon, and Levi, they've all disqualified themselves from being the eldest, from being the most important. And we learn in Genesis 49 that this coming Savior, who is to be a direct descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was to come from Judah, the eldest son. But Judah didn't seem to care about God's redemptive plan. He didn't care about God's promises to Abraham or to Isaac or to Jacob because he did something that Abraham didn't want Isaac to do and he did something that Isaac didn't want Jacob to do. He married a Canaanite woman. And thus the sons born to him were Canaanites. God killed two of them. And so although Tamar's methods are questionable at best, the fact is, is that she cared more about continuing the line of Judah than he did. Tamar was not a Canaanite. She was a Semite, meaning that she was related to Jacob's family. She was part of the family. And so providentially, God made certain that the line of Judah continued to preserve his kingdom plan. God made sure throughout Genesis to send the very clear message that he's the one who chooses the elect. He's the one who makes the choice of who his people are are to be. And they're often the least likely. Perez, technically the youngest son of Judah of Tamar, is chosen over Zerah, the eldest. We know this because Perez appears in Matthew 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And thus, through Tamar and Perez, a descendant of Judah would come who would crush the head of Satan, just like God promised in Genesis 3. God kept his word to Abraham. Because if Judah had had sons only with a Canaanite wife, at best, Messiah would only be half Jewish. He wouldn't even be a full Israelite. By the way, we've seen the end result of Judah's spiritual journey toward genuine faith, that fine speech of humility and repentance and sacrifice given in Genesis 44. But where did it begin? Where did the winds of change in Judah's heart really start to blow? When Judah realized he was the one who had impregnated Tamar and was about to execute her, chapter 38, verse 26, then Judah identified them, that is his cord and staff, and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. He begins to change. So the Lord has given three cornerstones to the formation of the kingdom, specifically the formation of the chosen nation through which would come the kingdom. But there's a final piece. This is the most important cornerstone. This is the cornerstone that all of Genesis is aiming for. And in fact, this cornerstone is a man who is sometimes nicknamed in the Bible the cornerstone. And that is the fourth cornerstone is a coming savior. A coming savior. It is a misuse of the Bible to see Jesus in every verse. When David fought Goliath, David wasn't a metaphor for Jesus. David was David. But that being said, the Old Testament most definitely gives us pictures of various coming realities. The most important coming reality, that of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. These pictures range from slight similarities called analogies, all the way, and those are very common, all the way to to clearly prophetic Uh, comparisons which we call types which are more rare 
We get the idea of a type of Christ from the Bible itself. Romans 5.14, the Apostle Paul says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Type is just the Greek word tupos, which means a pattern, a, a shadow, something that looks like Christ. Some would say that to be identified as a type of Christ, that pattern or that thing must be identified as such in the New Testament. I tend to agree with that in most cases. Adam is clearly identified as a type of Christ. In Matthew 12, Jesus identifies Jonah as a type of Christ, being in the belly of a whale for three days. Hebrews 9 identifies the earthly temple as a type of the heavenly temple. And so when the New Testament identifies a type, it's clear. That's a, that's a no-brainer. That's obvious. That's, a, that's an open and shut case. But by looking at some broader factors, we have to admit that a type not specifically identified in the New Testament may still serve the, punct- the function and the purpose of a type to point clearly to the greater object, which is sometimes called the antitype. Dr. Jim Roskup, the now-retired professor at the Master's Seminary, the Master's uh, Seminary, I had the privilege of being one of his final students, absolutely a technician when it comes to hermeneutics and the study of God's Word. He established a detailed grid, which has really become the gold standard, a detailed grid of seven major criteria to decide whether a picture in the Old Testament is a type or not, The most important criterion being a clear and definite Christ-like role. In his evaluation, Joseph meets six out of the seven criterion, meaning he's a lock. Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. But rather than getting hung up on whether Joseph is a type of Christ or just an analogy of Christ, there's no doubt whatsoever that the life of Joseph makes Jesus the Savior much more recognizable makes the Savior recognizable. It would take hours to walk through every similarity between Joseph and Jesus. I mean, we could talk about facts like Joseph was born to a barren mother and Jesus to a virgin. Joseph was a shepherd. Jesus is called the great shepherd. Both exposed evil and paid dearly for it. Both were beloved by their fathers. Both were hated and envied by their brothers, the Jews in Jesus' sake, in Jesus' case. Both were hated for their words of truth. Both foretold of their own future rule. Both were sent by their fathers to their brothers. Both sought the welfare of their brothers. Both were victims of a conspiracy. Both of them were stripped of their clothes when captured. Joseph was cast into a pit and Jesus cast into a grave. Both were sold for the price of a slave. Judah sold Joseph. And the Greek spelling of Judah, Judas sold Jesus. Joseph's supposed blood was presented to his father Jacob, and Jesus' blood was presented to his father as an offering for sin. Both came down from elevated positions to become servants. Joseph's masters were always pleased with him, and Jesus' father was always pleased with him. Both were a blessing to all around them. Both were tempted to sin, but did not fall into sin. Joseph tempted by Potiphar's wife, and Jesus tempted by Satan. Joseph was cast in the prison, though innocent. Jesus died, though innocent. Joseph suffered at his brother's hands, and then at the hands of Gentile Ishmaelites and Egyptians. Jesus suffered at the hands of his brothers, then at the hands of Gentile Romans. Joseph won the respect of his jailer, and Jesus won the respect of the Roman centurion standing at the cross. Joseph pronounced a blessing to one man imprisoned with him, but the curse of death on the other. 
Jesus saved one cross, uh, one thief on the cross next to him and the other was condemned. Joseph warned of coming danger of famine and urged his hearers to get ready. Jesus warned of coming judgment and urged his hearers to repent and be ready. Joseph was lifted up and exalted over all Egypt while Jesus was lifted up and exalted in heaven. Joseph shared the throne of Pharaoh and Jesus sits at the right hand of his father's throne. Joseph received from Pharaoh a new name. Jesus, according to Revelation 3.12, will receive a new name. Both were 30 years old when they began their ministries. Joseph's exaltation was followed by a season of great harvest, then a season of terrible tribulation. Jesus' exaltation to heaven has been followed by the great harvest of the church age, which will be followed by the great tribulation. Joseph was seen as the only one able to give bread to a perishing world. Jesus alone is the bread of life who has the way of salvation. Joseph became the Savior not just of his people, but of all the nations. Jesus came to the Jew first and then to be the Savior to all the nations. Joseph had unlimited resources to meet the needs of all people. In Christ, according to Ephesians 1, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Joseph's family was driven out of their own land with the hope of a future return. Jesus' people were driven out of Jerusalem in 70 AD and have yet to fully come home, but they will, they shall. Joseph was unknown and unrecognized by his own brothers. Today, almost all Jews do not recognize Jesus as their brother, as their savior. And Joseph was punished, punished his brothers before bringing them to repentance. And Jesus continues to deal harshly with the spiritual blindness of the Jews until they come to faith in the future. But we won't talk about those similarities. Let me, however, point out one I think that is the most telling and important feature of Joseph that makes him so Savior-like. Look with me back at Genesis 45, verse 5. Genesis 45, verse 5, and listen to what he says to his brothers. Genesis 45, verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Do not be distressed or angry with yourselves. Or to put it another way, Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's saying there's no condemnation for you because I'm covering you. Joseph has forgiven them and is lavishing love and provision on them. But after Jacob dies, the brothers get nervous. Maybe now that their father is dead, the real revenge is coming. Look at Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. This is the old trick of saying the deceased would have wanted something. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Now, in the case of Jesus, Jesus is in the place of God. But verse 20, this is the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. 
Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. There will be a day when many of the Jews who once rejected and condemned Christ will stand forgiven before him. And so the life of Joseph makes the coming Savior, Jesus Christ, extremely familiar, extremely recognizable. But in one of the most important sections in all of Genesis, the coming Savior then is directly predicted. Previous chapter, Genesis 49. In Genesis 48, Jacob legally adopts Joseph's two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, making them full sons and entitled to full privileges as tribes of Israel. And famously, Jacob blesses Ephraim the younger as the eldest son and Manasseh the older as the youngest son. He blessed both boys and he promised that although Manasseh would be great, Ephraim would be greater. And this follows the pattern all along in Genesis that God makes it clear, I do the choosing, I am the one who elects. The younger is chosen over the elder, Abel over Cain, Jacob over Esau, Perez over Zerah, and Ephraim over Manasseh. God is consistent. And now in Genesis 49, Jacob calls his sons together for his final blessing before he dies, a patriarchal prophetic blessing given by the Spirit of God. And Judah gets this detailed blessing from his father. Verse 8 of chapter 49. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people's. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Verse 8 describes a coming total reign over all the kings of the earth while the descendants of Israel bow down to him. Verse 9, Judah is like a lion's cub who will develop and grow into a full hunter and a dominant force. Verse 10, the scepter of kingship will never leave Judah. The tribe of Judah will always have a king. And by the way, if anybody says, well, Israel is going away. There is no more nation of Israel. Israel is not coming back. Well, how do you explain the fact that Judah will always have a king? How do you explain that? And someday all peoples will obey this king and bring their tribute to him. And verses 11 and 12 pictures a king presiding over a prosperous and wealthy and fruitful world. And so Genesis begins with this shadowed promise of a coming seed of a woman. And at this point, now we know he's coming from Judah. He'll be a great king. He'll be the sacrificial savior of his people. And someday he'll rule the world in victory and in prosperity. The message of Genesis is that the kingdom is coming. And in the very end of chapter 49, verse 33 When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And we now get to the end of Joseph's life, the one who has wept so much. You know who is recorded as weeping more than anybody in the Old Testament? It's Joseph. You know who's recorded as weeping more than anybody in the New Testament? Take a guess. It's Christ. Genesis 50, verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. 
And Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis began with a warning to Adam that if he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he shall surely die. And Genesis ends with Joseph in a coffin. He has died. And yet there's hope. 400 years later, when the now 3 million strong nation of Israel is leaving Egypt, Exodus thirteen nineteen. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from there. Someday it will be in Israel that Joseph is resurrected, and I'm certain of this, because it was in Israel that Jesus Christ, the truest Joseph of all, was resurrected already. And so the chosen nation of Israel is now on its way to full establishment so that they can someday fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, be a blessing to all nations through the person of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that idea didn't begin with Jesus. It began all the way in Genesis 1. And now at the end of Genesis, we see the seeds of the formation of this coming kingdom. And of course, while that's a wonderful story, the only way it's a wonderful story for you and for me is if we're a part of that kingdom. And the only way to be a part of that kingdom is to join Joseph and his brothers in being redeemed. We have to be redeemed as well. And therefore, we can be part of the kingdom. Well, there we are with Genesis. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this glorious, amazing book that has pointed us so clearly from the very beginning to the Garden of Eden, which just represents really all the goodness of an entirely uh, beautiful creation which you made for mankind to enjoy and to have dominion over and to subdue and to rule and to be fruitful and to multiply. And yet in your sovereign plan, you allowed for sin to enter into your creation, to mar the creation And though we are still created in the image of God, we now carry the sin nature of our father Adam. And you made a promise. You promised that a king would come and he would restore the kingdom. He would forgive many of their sins and we would enter once again into Eden. And Genesis begins that saga, begins that redemptive plan. And we're so thankful to you, Lord, to be part of that plan. We're thankful to you that we know the name of of the seed of woman of Genesis 3.15. We know the name of the king to whom the scepter will never depart of Genesis 49. We know that his name is Jesus. We thank you that he is the crux, the centerpiece, the glorious center of your redemptive plan. And it is our, it is our hope and it is our prayer and it is our wish to spend eternity glorifying him. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.